All right, today we'll be looking at uh, getting the big picture of the book of Lamentations. As we think about this, you're going to see a lot of suffering. So I'm curious, any of you like to suffer? Any of you just love suffering? You love pain? You love seeing other, no, not other people, but no, we, we don't, none of us really like suffering, do we? Uh, in fact, we like the opposite. We, we like to prosper. So how do you deal with suffering? Well, the book of Lamentations is helpful in this regard in, in showing us suffering and then how, how to deal with that. How do you respond to life's difficult circumstances and losses? We're all going to have those sort of things. So how do you deal with that? Well, the Bible is, again, so helpful. The book of Lamentations will help to give you answers to questions of, like, how should you deal with suffering? And the reason we can say that is because this book was written in reaction to the destruction of the city of Jerusalem, and it was destroyed in 586 B.C. by the Babylonians. In fact, they came in, they, they tore down the walls, they burned everything, they, 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 they stole anything of any value, destroyed the temple, murdered people, and anybody of any value to them, they took off to Babylon as slaves. It was not a good situation. You'll see a picture of maybe what it looked like. So the physical, the psychological, and even the spiritual devastation of Jerusalem was horrific. You, you think bad, probably amp that up even worse, is, is what you're getting here. And so when the Babylonian army besieged the city of Jerusalem, terrible calamities happened to the people. You have to remember the Babylonians, they had been camped out, sieged out outside the city of Jerusalem there for a while. They didn't like just sitting around doing nothing for the most part. And so when they finally broke through, they destroyed the temple, the palace, the walls, and the entire city of Jerusalem. And then in addition to that, the army led many of the inhabitants off into exile. So why was this event so bad? Why was it so bad? Well, the Israelites need to understand they not only lost a city, but they lost their chief city. They lost the most important thing, and it was also their capital. And so in losing Jerusalem, it, it meant losing all of that hourly, everything that represented their nation was gone. The ruling line of David was gone. The priests were gone. The sacrifices, gone. The temple, gone. The promised land itself was lost. And so that event was, of course, a devastating loss. So naturally, the people of Jerusalem lamented their sufferings. Therefore, we get the name of Lamentations. A lot of lamenting going on here. And it's, and it's written in response to this horrible event, the sacking of the city of Jerusalem. And so the reason the book is, of course, called Lamentations is because these people are expressing their sorrow, their laments over the capture and destruction of Jerusalem. And you might ask, well, who wrote this book? Well, we're not really certain, frankly, who wrote the book. It doesn't mention the person's name. A lot of books mention it in verse 1, but this doesn't mention it. Now, many of us think that it was the prophet Jeremiah. He may have been the one who did it. So why was the book written? Why was it written? Well, Lamentations was written to express grief over their loss. It was also written to help God's people to cope with their suffering. To cope with and understand, well, what do we do now? What do we do now? 
It reminded them of God's presence and God's rule in their life. Suffering is a significant time in any person's life. Just imagine, this might happen to you someday. Imagine sitting in the doctor's office and the doctor saying, you're probably going to be dead this year because of your cancer. It's invading your entire body. What are you going to do when the doctor tells you that? What are you going to do if it's your spouse who's dying of cancer? Or, or one of your children or your siblings? Or It can happen. What are you going to do? How are you going to react to that? It's a significant time in our lives. It's, it's all invasive. Usually in those times it's all you can think about. You, and you might even have a hard time praying. You, you may not feel like reading the Bible. You may not feel like coming to church. Suffering acts as a check on our hopes. It refines our hopes. It, it might even change our hopes. Suffering's either going to harden us or it's going to make us more usable in God's hands. Did you hear that? It's, it will have an effect on you. You're not going to stay neutral. It's going to have an effect. It's either going to harden you or it's going to make you more usable in God's hands. So how do you carry on through suffering? Well, through this particular book of Lamentations here, God led his people to do more than just mourn and lament. He actually led them to do five things, which come from the five chapters of this wonderful little book. By the way, if you've never done this, read it in one sitting. I read it this morning uh, for my own quiet time with God, and it only took me 18 minutes, and I'm not a fast reader, okay? Uh, The point wasn't to get through it, the point was to hear from God, what, what, what does he want me to know about him and his ways? And so, it'll take you less than 20 minutes, most likely. Just read through the entire book. So what can we learn from the book of Lamentations? Five things coming from each of the five chapters. Number one, we see in chapter one here, that when suffering comes, confess your sins. Well, that's probably not the first thing you, you were thinking of. Why, well, wait a minute. Wait, wait, when suffering comes, that God tells me to confess my sins? Well, remember, sin's your greatest problem. It, it, it's, it's caused the world great headaches and problems over the years, hasn't it? And, and you as well. Now, we need to understand Israel's situation was extremely desperate. Uh, the author of this, this first lament here clearly lived through this Babylonian siege that took place from 588 to 587 B.C. And you can see it right here in these first verses. Look at Lamentations 1, verse 1. He, he's talking about the city of Jerusalem here in verse 1. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow has she become? She who was great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave she weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks among all her lovers she has none to comfort her all her friends have dealt treacherously with her they have become her enemies judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude she dwells now among the nations but finds no resting place her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads to Zion or Jerusalem mourn, for none come to the festival 
All her gates are desolate. Her priests groan. Her virgins have been afflicted. And she herself suffers bitterly. And so as you continue, we'll we'll stop there for now, but as you continue reading through chapter 1, you'll you'll find a lot of suffering. Uh, We see affliction. We see exile. They're mourning. Uh, They've actually abandoned their religious practices. And the city is desolate. The walls are broken down. The temple's been destroyed. Jerusalem is shocked by her fall. Her treasures have been looted. Her temple's been violated. The people are groaning for food. They're starving. Her army's been defeated. And the people's future, well, frankly, they don't even see a future. It seems pretty much hopeless. The the future, if there is one, just seems to be in the hands of their enemy. So the situation's desperate. But Israel, in the midst of their desperation, was called to confess their sins. In chapter 1 here, we are told who has done the afflicting and why the afflicting has been done. Now, it may not be the person you're thinking of. Look at verse 5. Look at verse 5. Her foes, Jerusalem's foes, have become the head. Her enemies prosper. Why? Why is this happening? Look at the next phrase. Because Yahweh has afflicted her. For the multitude of her transgressions, her children have gone away captives before the foe. Now you may have expected Babylon or King Nebuchadnezzar to be inserted in there instead of Yahweh. Right? That's what a lot of people expect. But God puts his name there. Yahweh, Lord. He is the one who has done the afflicting. Why did he do that? It's because of their sin. It's because of their sin. And so in the last part of chapter 1, Jerusalem is is speaking. You you get this this narrator and Jerusalem speaking throughout this book. And Jerusalem speaks to confess her sin in verse 18. Look at chapter 1, verse 18. The Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. But hear, all you peoples, and see my suffering. My young women and my young men have gone into captivity. I called to my lovers, but they deceived me. My priests and elders perished in the city while they sought food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, for I am in distress. My stomach churns. My heart is wrung within me, because I have been very rebellious. In the street the sword bereaves, in the house it's like death. They heard my groaning, yet there is no one to comfort me. All my enemies have heard of my trouble. They are glad that you have done it. You have brought the day you announced, now let them be as I am. Let all their evil doing come before you and deal with them as you have dealt with me. Because of all my transgressions, for my groanings are many, and my heart is faint. Let's stop there. We see Israel is confessing their sins before the Lord. Well, that makes me wonder about us, about you. How should you begin to deal with your suffering? We're all going to suffer at some point in your life, so how do you deal with it? Well, number one, you should be patient. You should be patient in the midst of your suffering. Wait on the Lord, the Bible says. We should also be humble. Recognizing, in in reality, 
we deserve to suffer. We all deserve to suffer. In fact, I keep having this conversation with my children for some reason over these last couple of years because the word fair keeps popping up in our conversations. That's not fair. And I have to remind my children, and you who are parents, remind your children, you don't want what's fair. You do not want what's fair. If God gives us what's fair, we end up in the lake of fire for all eternity. That's what's fair. So we need to be humble and we need to confess our sins because we're all sinners. None of us are righteous. No, not one. Well, if you're anything like me, which I'm sure you are, humility and confession are not your first reactions when suffering comes your way. Usually we want to complain, we want to gripe, we want to whinge, right? That, that's usually my natural inclination. I want to stiffen up, I want, to, I want to fight back, I want to hit back, especially if it's somebody who hasn't been very nice to me. But God clearly used suffering in my life and in your life to instruct his people. And so what do we need to do? We, we need to wait patiently. We need to learn through that suffering. Don't become hardened. Don't become bitter. If you become hardened and bitter, then you're, you're, really, you're really bypassing what, what God's trying to do in your life. So use your sufferings as opportunities to see your sin. And then, then be humbled by God in the process. Don't despise sufferings. We often do, though, right? We despise sufferings. We don't like sufferings. <laughs> and I don't blame you. Uh, especially if it's, it's, if it's painful. Right? We don't like pain. We like to avoid pain. It's very easy to despise suffering. But God wants us... I'm not saying you should enjoy the pain, okay? Don't be weird about it. But, but we can rejoice in everything that God gives to us. And then... <laughs> I'll just kind of borrow a, a title of a book I've heard is Don't... Don't waste your life. And somebody's taken that, and, and in fact, I think I've even read a book called Don't Waste Your Pain, Don't Waste Your Suffering, Don't Waste Your Cancer. God gives you cancer or gives you suffering, don't waste it. Use it. Use it to bring Him honor and glory. Take your suffering as God's refining, and maybe even chastening in your life, and begin by confessing your sins to God. Number two, how, how do we deal with suffering? What do we, how do we respond? Well, when suffering comes, recognize your divine judge. Recognize your divine judge. That's what chapter 2 is telling us about. So just like chapter 1, much of chapter 2 is filled with, well, really, it's, it's a description of Jerusalem's devastation and their suffering. But that description has an interesting twist. As you read through chapter 2, you'll see the writer specifically recognizes that the destructive work, again, it doesn't belong to Nebuchadnezzar and his Babylonian army. It specifically belongs to God. If you don't believe me, look at chapter 2, verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1. How the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel... He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the inhabitants of Jacob. Remember, Jacob's, another, Jacob's name was turned to Israel. 
He's talking about Israel here. He goes on in verse 2, In his wrath he has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought down to the ground in dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn from them his right hand in the face of the enemy. He has burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around. He has bent his bow like an enemy, with his right hand set like a foe. And he has killed all who were delightful in his eyes. In the tent of the daughter of Zion, he has poured out his fury like fire. The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all its palaces. He has laid in ruins its strongholds. And he has multiplied in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentation. Let's stop there. You see, God is not ashamed to say, I am doing this because of your sin. So among the calamity, the people were called to recognize God, and specifically to recognize God as ruler. He is the the sovereign one who reigns supreme over all of His creation. But in the midst of this, we see Him as judge. The righteous judge bringing judgment on His people. By the way, He's been very long-suffering with them. If you know anything about Israel's history, uh, they had a lot of bad kings. And even, even in the midst of the good kings, like Josiah, the people still refused to repent. Most of the people refused to worship the one true God. So God was very long-suffering to them and eventually brought them what they deserved. Now look at chapter 2, verse 17. Chapter 2, verse 17, the Lord has done what He purposed. He has carried out His word which He commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. Now, this is amazing when you realize how easy it would have been to just to blame others. Oh, we love blame shifting. You know, they could have said things like, hey, it's the fault of the Israelite soldiers. You know, if that stupid watchman up there hadn't fallen asleep, we'd still all be alive and still have our city. You know, they they could have blamed the soldiers. Or, you know, hey, it's the fault of the, those stupid engineers. They just did a bad job in building the city of Jerusalem. Or it's the builders, you know, it's their fault. You know, they did a poor job in building the wall or, or blame the mortar or whatever. Or or it's the king's fault. You know, if he hadn't upset King Nebuchadnezzar, we wouldn't be in this mess. Right? (laughs) Isn't this the kind of the way we we love to react to things? They could have gone on like that. They could have blamed each other, blamed other people for the horrible suffering that they had experienced. But if you look here in chapter 2, verse 17, that what's going on? It's the Lord... He's the one who's done what he's purposed here. And so the writer here, of course, the Holy Spirit, and whatever human author he uses, is clearly pointing to God. He's in charge. So what about us? Again, we need to think about us. You know, we're not living in Jerusalem at, at this devastating time. And so we too must recognize the fact that we're not beyond God's reach. We still have the same God. God hasn't changed. He's always the same. In fact, 
That's one of those great truths. He is immutable. To be immutable means God doesn't change. He, he can't change. It's against his character. And so this God is still the same. He's our judge. He's our ruler. And by the way, even when calamities come into my life and your life, this judge is still the same. And we've got to recognize him as judge and ruler. Now, some people struggle with crediting suffering and calamity to God. Some people just really suffer with that. They don't like that concept. You know, they, they like to think of God as, as some helpless God whose hands are tied behind his back, and all this bad stuff happening on earth is, is outside of his control. He's not supreme. He's not sovereign. He's not in charge. And so they argue, hey, doesn't it seem wrong to suggest here that God could do such things and be so angry with his people? He is. <laughs> and so my friends, anger, by the way, is bad only if it's not controlled. Only if it's directed, and by the way, it is good when it's directed to good, to good ends. That's why you have in Ephesians, it says, be angry and sin not. It's possible to be angry and not sin. But we as sinful people, that's almost impossible. But God can do it, and he does. He's angry with the wicked every day, the Bible says. And so under control, it's properly directed anger is something that's good. Of course, God's anger is always under control. He never loses control of anything. And it's, of course, properly directed. And, the, and where it needs to be directed is towards sin. And that's what we see going on here. So the reality is, God is right to act in judgment on sin. God doesn't overlook sin. He acts on it. He deals with it. And that's what He's doing here. And so it's easy for us to just kind of pass over God's role. We quickly blame others for what goes wrong in our lives. We complain about that workmate. You know, that really nasty workmate who's, who's played, he just loves playing tricks on you. You guys have one of those kind of workmates. I know some of you do. You know, they're, they seem like they can never say anything nice to you, do anything nice for you. They're always playing tricks. You know, they know you're a Christian, so, so they're purposely putting pornography up in front of you and swearing around you and so forth. Right? I've had those kind of workmates. They're not nice to live with, are they? Or, or you know, you want, we want to blame the negligent doctor who, who messed up and got our report wrong or just, you know, didn't send us off to the specialist when they should have or refused to send us for an MRI when we really needed one. And because of that, now we got cancer. So we blame the negligent doctor. Or we blame the ignorant boss. You know, my boss is just stupid. He, he can't see the value of having me. He's so blessed to have me as, as an employee. Or we blame that hurtful spouse. You know, if it wasn't for my spouse hurting me all the time, I would just be awesome. My spouse is so lucky to have me. You know, I'm the best man in the whole world. She, there's no man in the world better than me. She is so blessed. Or, you know, you might be that, you know, the overprotective parent. Whoa. <laughs> you know, we've got to put our children in the box and chain the box up until they're 20 and then we can let them out or... You know, just put a bubble around them and think that's going to fix everything. Or we can complain about the greedy businessman. 
Oh, the greedy businessmen, or the, those corporates, you know, the CEOs making millions of dollars, it's their fault. We can blame the thief who doesn't seem to have any conscience, right? That, that if it wasn't for that thief stealing my stuff, it'd be okay. And all those people, by the way, they may deserve some blame, okay? Don't get me wrong, all right? They may deserve some blame. But as Christians, we must beware of behaving like practical atheists. You know what an atheist is, right? An atheist is someone who doesn't believe in God. Goes around acting like there is no God. Of course, Romans 1 says there is no such thing as an honest atheist. But we as even believers, we can behave like practical atheists. We go living on like... You know, God's not in charge as if there is no God. And God truly does reign supreme over all of his creation, though, including you, including your boss, your workmates, your spouse, your children. And so when we suffer, we must recognize that God has a good plan. His ways are perfect. He's in charge of everything that's happening in our lives. Number three. We see, I'm going to, by the way, I'm skipping chapter 3 for now. We'll look at that at the end, and you'll see why at the end. So let's go to chapter 4, and we see that when suffering comes, give special attention to God's leaders. When suffering comes, give special attention to God's leaders. You see, God wanted His people to recognize the responsibility of their leaders. A lot of what had happened in the southern kingdom of Judah well, in, in Israel as well, the northern kingdom was a result of the leaders. The northern kingdom had a lot of bad kings. And the southern kingdom also had a lot of bad kings. And so I think we're, we're going to see some special attention. Well, I know you're going to see special attention given to the leaders in chapter 4. Number uh, First thing I want you to consider is that the priest had become untouchable. The priest had become untouchable. So once again, tremendous suffering is described here in chapter 4. And we see this going on both during the siege as well as after the siege. And if we look at these first ten verses here in chapter 4, we learn that fortunes were lost. There was this, this uh, the, the law of the jungle, if you will, kind of came out in the midst of the horrible suffering going on. The, uh, there was this predatory instinct, even amongst the priests, preying on, on vulnerable people in the midst of this suffering. Uh, if you read here, we, we find that bread and water became scarce. Uh, parents and children died as a result. The scarcity made money worthless. Uh, the law of the jungle, as I said, kind of took over. Death reigned. And so some people, what they did is they actually preferred to be killed by the Babylonians than to keep on going on. They didn't want to starve within the city walls. And verse 10 is one of the, the most disturbing verses in this book. Look at verse 10. Chapter 4, verse 10. It says, The hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. Yuck. They became their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. Can you imagine parents getting so desperate, so hungry, that you kill your children boil them in water, and eat your own child. That's what they did, some of them. So what's the explanation for all these horrible things? 
Well, if we read on in chapter 4, we find a lot of the explanation lies with the leaders. Look at verse 13. Look at verse 13. This was for the sins of who? Look at the, it says, her prophets. Her prophets and the iniquities of her priest, who shed in the midst of the blood of the righteous. They wandered blind through the streets. They were so defiled with blood that no one was able to touch their garments. Away! Unclean! People cried at them. Away! Away! Do not touch! So they became fugitives and wanders. People said among the nations, They shall stay with us no longer. So the ones who were to teach the people, the ones who were to lead the people, the ones who were to tell them about you know, cleanness, how to, how to have a, a godly life before God, became themselves unclean. That's what's going on here. So the priests had become untouchable. Number two, God's people were called to recognize the responsibility of their leaders. God wanted them to know that leaders will be severely judged. Look at verse 16. The Lord Himself has scattered them. He will regard them no more. No honor was shown to the priests, no favor to the elders. God's going to deal with these leaders. You say, well, we don't have prophets and priests today, so what about us? Well, from this book we learn something about the importance of leaders, don't we? We could apply this to leaders within our church. So clearly it's vital for leaders to be honestly devoted to God. And by the way, would you please pray for that? Okay? That doesn't come naturally as, as a sinner. Okay, Sinners aren't naturally devoted to God, so... So I need God's grace. I need God's enabling. And so the leaders were, by the way, they're not condemned for their inexperience. They're not condemned for their inefficiency. They're not condemned here for their lack of skills. But they are condemned because their hearts went after the wrong gods. They're condemned here because of their wicked sin that they ended up following. And so in the process, they ended up leading the people in the wrong way. That's what they're condemned for. So, let me just apply this to you and me here in New Zealand. If judgment should fall in New Zealand, and by the way, I think judgment is already falling in New Zealand. I fear a special portion of that's going to fall on the prophets and priests of our land. And I don't literally mean prophets and priests, but what I mean is the, it's the preachers, it's the pastors, the elders, the leaders in congregations throughout our country have a special portion of God's judgment to fall on them. And too often and for too long, we've really compromised the gospel. God's judgment will fall mightily upon any pastor who preaches falsehood, any pastor or elder or preacher who pampers sin, who overlooks sin, special judgment's going to fall on them. In fact, the Bible says there's a there's a stricter judgment that comes, that comes to anybody who preaches and teaches God's Word. So any of you who do that in your own home or, or here with children or up here, beware. Number four, let's move on to chapter five. What do we learn here? When suffering comes, pray for the future. When suffering comes, pray for the future. 
And so in the midst of all of this calamity that was happening there in, in Judah and Jerusalem, prayer is what God called His people to do. God did not just leave them alone. So chapter 5 really continues to describe the people in their desperate situation here. And so what does God call them to do? Look at chapter 5. And uh, in fact, we don't have time to read the whole chapter, but uh, what you see in chapter 5 is really one long prayer. The entire chapter is basically one long prayer. Let's just look at verse 1 for now. All right, chapter 5, verse 1 says, Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. And then it goes on to get into more specifics. But the author then prays primarily for restoration. He also prays for renewal. And if you look at uh, the end of the chapter, you'll kind of get uh, the bookends of this wonderful prayer. Look at verse 21. Verse 21. Restore to us your Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us, and you remain exceedingly angry with us. So we see a prayer here for restoration and renewal. So what about you? What, what do you do when you suffer? Do any of you pray when you're suffering? That's what you should do. Is that what you do when you suffer? This is a good example of what to do when you suffer. You should pray. I mean, after all, think about this. What more can you do than pray to the one who's in charge of your suffering? Right? Those of you who have a job, you're an employee. Right? If you've got a problem at work, well, you can just hope it's going to go away, or you can go talk to your boss because he's the one who can do something about it, right? Well, why don't we do that in our Christian lives? Let's talk to the boss, talk to the one who's in charge, the one who knows what's happening to us. He's the one who can help us. Well, how should we pray? You say, well, that's, it's kind of difficult to pray when you're suffering, isn't it? Very difficult. Well, number one. Ask God for help to endure your trials and temptations. Ask God for help to endure your trials and temptations. If you haven't memorized 1 Corinthians 10.13, you should. It is so helpful. 1 Corinthians 10.13 talks about there, there's, there's something that's common to all of us, and God has provided a way of escape. Number two, ask God to shed the light of understanding that you need to get through it. That, that was one of the problems Job had. He kept asking why. He, there's a lot of things he didn't understand. and He didn't have any of Scripture. And it wasn't until the end, after he had suffered a while, that God talked to him and helped him out. So we need, we need to have some light of understanding. It is, it, it's the Holy Spirit that's going to show you His Word. Go to His Word. Number three, don't ever think that you've approached God too many times. You ever feel that way? You might think, well, man, I've already prayed 567 times today about this situation. I mean, can God possibly listen to 568 and 9? Is he willing to do that? Of course he is. Don't think you've approached him too many times because you haven't. That's not possible. And so if the people of Israel were being punished for their sins, and they were, here's my question for you. 
How could they expect God to listen to their prayers? You ever thought about that? Okay, I'm a sinner. (laughs) I'm getting punished for my sin. Uh, Is God going to listen to me? Why should he listen to me? Those are good questions. And so to really answer that question, you need to turn back to chapter 3. Turn back to chapter 3. And what we see here in chapter 3 is when suffering comes, hope in God. Hope in God. Now, before we look into chapter 3, you need to understand something about Hebrew poetry. Hebrew poetry is amazing. And this is, one, this is an amazing chapter. And if you have a good study Bible, it'll probably help highlight some of the things going on in chapter 3. I don't have time to get into it all. It is truly complex. Holy Spirit-inspired stuff here that's just mind-boggling, right? So, so grab a good study Bible, have a read of the introduction, and see what it says, particularly about chapter 3, because I, I just don't have time to get into it. But in Hebrew poetry, what it often does is it climaxes in the middle. So if you think of a, think of a mountain, all right? The climax of the mountain, of course, at the very peak, at the top. So if you have, you have chapter 1 in the valley, chapter 2 is going up higher. Chapter 3 is the climax, the summit. And then chapter 4 goes down and 5 finishes. Right? That's what's going on here. And right in the middle, chapter 3, here's this longest chapter. And it's carrying really the heart of the message of the entire book of Lamentations. So, at this point, the siege of Jerusalem has taken a, a very terrible physical toll. Bad stuff going on. The Israelites were trapped by the Babylonians. It seemed like God was ignoring them. It seems like God has abandoned them. Uh, Their peace and plenty had been replaced by war and want. What are they to do? Well, they find the answer right here in in the center part of chapter 3. The very center of the book. And so before we, we look at this, let's look at the prophet's pain for a moment, okay? Because it, it's really uh, seen in many different verses, which we haven't had time to read. The prophet is suffering, along with the people. Let me just highlight seven things just quickly here. Number one, that God used his enemies, the Babylonians, to afflict Israel. The Babylonians weren't good people. And so God's using wicked people to afflict his people here. And so the prophet's confused as he's watching God reverse his past attitude and actions. Israel had kind of been complacent, proud, arrogant. Hey, we're God's special chosen people. There's nobody else on the earth like us. And so instead of walking in the light of God's guidance, here he is, he's stumbling in darkness. God's afflictions had taken their toll on on his, his health. The prophet's health was affected like many other people. He couldn't see the way out of his adversity. His freedom's gone, and he's feeling like God is not listening to him. His prayers aren't being answered. You ever felt that way? I know what that's like. That's a horrible situation to be in. And and if you read on, you find out he felt that God was against him. He was mocked. He's laughed at. He's lost his peace. He's lost happiness. Hope is gone. That's the situation he's in. That's that's the first half of Lamentations chapter three. But then we get into some good stuff, starting here in chapter or sorry, chapter three, verse nineteen. We see the prophet's hope. Look at verse nineteen. We see that God knows our afflictions. He says, "Remember my affliction and my wanderings." 
the wormwood and the gall? God knows your affliction, my friends. Peter said that you can cast your care upon him because he cares for you. He knows the hairs on your head. He knows when birds fall out of the nest. He knows all that and more. We also see that God's love never ceases. God's love never ceases. Look at verse 22. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. These are some of the most precious verses in all the Bible. Coming right in the midst of the worst suffering imaginable. We also see the prophet's hope was in a good God. And one of the ways he is good is that he restores. He restores. And and that's what we're seeing in verses 25 to 30. He's restoring. Look at verse 25. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait patiently for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. So this... God, who is always good, is restoring. By the way, we also see affliction is only temporary. And so God doesn't forget about his people in verse 31. It says, for the Lord will not cast off forever. We also see in verse 32, afflictions influenced by God's compassion and love. Look at verse 32. But though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. In verse 33, we see God does not delight in affliction. God's not one of these, these nasty guy, you know, gods of the Greeks and Romans who's very sadistic. God's not like that at all. Look at verse 33. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. So if affliction comes because of injustice, God is going to see that, and then God of course, will not approve of that. That's what we see in verses 34 through 36. And we also see in verse 37 that affliction is always in God's control. Look at verse 37. Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? That's a rhetorical question. The answer is, of course it does. All good and bad comes from God. And then in verse 39, we see that affliction ultimately came because of Judah's sins. Verse 39 says, Why should a living man complain, a man, about the punishment of his sins? And then number 10, we see affliction is for the purpose of turning God's people back to him. God is being gracious and loving by doing this. Look at verse 40. Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. And so in these wonderful verses, we're finding hope, aren't we? We find the hope that they had, and this hope was based on three things. I'll just quickly point these out to you. Number one, the hope is based on the character of God. It's based on the character of God. That's verses 21 through 33. We see a God who is faithful, a God who is love, two of the big things. We also see that God is good. Verses 34 to 39, we see a defense of God's actions. God doesn't need to defend himself, but he, but he is. And then there's this call to confession and repentance. Let, let's read these verses. Verse 40. Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. 
we have transgressed and rebelled, and you have not forgiven. Well, we'll stop there for now. Remarkably, by the way, the author said the words of verse 22, which we read earlier, while he's still weeping, he's crying, he's in pain and sorrow. And look, he says, verse 22, that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, his mercies never come to an end. He knew that God is a good God and that God is always good. And so it's because of Yahweh's great love here that we, my friends, we are not consumed. Why is that? It's because that His mercies here, mercies, notice it's plural. His, it's His compassions, His mercies, what? They never fail. Never fail. Again, notice it's plural, mercies. It's compassions, plural. God's compassions and mercies are numerous. They they are beyond us even able to count. And so in the Hebrew, by the way, the word for love is also in the plural. That's also plural. You say, well, what is the point? Why are you pointing it out? It's because of Yahweh's great loves that we are not consumed. He's not just the God of love. He is of great loves. And then you look at verse 23, we, we read that his faithfulness is great. God's faithfulness is great. God's compassions and God's love stand parallel with his faithfulness. The author, by the way, could, he could look back on the history of Israel. He could look back on his own life. He could see that God's record of dealing with his people justified their hope. Even in the darkest of times, by the way, God is still faithful. God is still love. He could look at their present sufferings. He could know that God's just character was behind everything that was happening to them. He understood that this judgment was a result of their sin. They deserved it. So my friend, just think about this. My friend, God's justice is behind everything that happens to you. Let me repeat that. God's justice is is behind everything that happens to you. So what about you? What about you? When all your circumstances begin to look down, you feel like maybe your life's falling apart, where do you look for hope? Where do you turn in those times? You must look to God's character. God is a God of compassion, of love, and faithfulness. And, 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 and you can see those things most clearly through what He has accomplished in Jesus Christ. So in the midst of our suffering, it should drive us to look to Christ. Jesus Christ suffered according to God's purposes more than any of us in this room will ever suffer. And by the way, He did it all for love's sake. Christ was not a sinner. He wasn't suffering because he's a sinner. Christ was suffering because he did it because he loves. And so knowing his, this will makes a difference when I'm suffering. It should make a difference when you're suffering. And so when we suffer for God, we need to realize our only lasting hope is in God's unchanging character. Our only hope lies in what Jesus Christ has accomplished is accomplishing, and is going to do for us. And there's two responses to suffering. Just take note of these, okay? Number one, you can deny God's hand in your suffering. 
And in the process, what's going to happen is you're going to be, become self-righteous. You'll probably grow bitter. You'll probably stop going to church. You'll become a grumpy old person. That's probably what will happen if you deny God's hand in it. Or you can see that God reigns supreme over everything happening in your life, and you can trust God, you can wait upon Him in the midst of your suffering. And you can still be a happy, joy-filled person in the process, even though your circumstances look horrible. So do you have sin to confess? The answer is yes. We all have sin to confess. So when we suffer, use that suffering in your life to see your sin as God sees it. Can you pray? Can you hope in God? Of course you can. Guess what? Suffering was either going to make you bitter, or suffering can be part of God's plan in your life to refine you, to renew you, to bring you back to himself, to make you better. Do you really believe that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose? It's true. By the way, the good of Romans 8.28 is in the next couple verses. Do you know what it says in the next couple verses in Romans 8? The good, everything that happens in our life is to transform you, to conform you to the image of Christ. So choose to trust God because He's good and wise. He is the one who can make you better through your suffering. So my friend, what do you do when you're suffering? How do you respond to suffering? Confess, pray, trust, and hope. 